somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey toward the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 19 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from Sir K. Diem by Indigenous, and it's available from magnitude.com. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. Subterranean by Seymour Jacklin The people round here treat me with some sort of awe, of which I'm completely undeserving. Of course, through most of my youth, I kept quite aloof from my peers, but I was extremely preoccupied with my own highly absorbing melancholia. Although I have the very earliest memories of a sunny garden and a high wall with sunflowers and unspeakable happiness, as I grew up, the shadows seemed to come down. I saw evil in the world at an early age, and Perhaps I decided to make my peace with it before it did to me what it did to a lot of good people I know. As a result, most of my adolescence was dark and without pleasure. And then, at twenty years of age, the shadows lifted as surely as they had come down. Perhaps I do carry myself like someone who's travelled a long way on a dark path and lived to tell the tale. Maybe that is why people are always asking me for advice. Yesterday, a young friend of my father's by the name of Michael asked to see me. He told me that he'd inherited some land on the edge of the village from a deceased family member and he'd gone to see it. As I walked over it, I was filled with foreboding. What could this mean? Was there blood in these fields? I knew instantly that I should consult you, he said. In fact, that I should take your advice on what to do with this land, because I feel that, above all, I would just like to be rid of it. I'll even give it to you if you wish. How did your relative come into it? I asked. It's been in the family for several generations, he answered. Seized, I believe, from a treasonous earl by the king and given to my ancestor who was loyal to him. "'Why are you asking me about this?' I asked. "'Don't you know?' he said. "'You're the only one I can trust. "'Everyone in this village whispers but you. "'Everyone but you grasps for all that they can, but not you. "'And I think you must know a lot about trees and things, "'for you're always outdoors.' "'I agreed that I would go with him "'and have a look at his inheritance the following day. "'The next day,' It was a cool day, perhaps the first real day of autumn, 
That one first day in the year when the leaves sigh their last breath and let go of the branches like so many bats and scatter earthwards, laying their dry bodies upon one another with an air of relief as if they've been anxious to embrace their own decay and return to the soil. I met my friend at the gate, for I'd seen his approach down the road and got myself ready before he arrived. We exchanged muffled greetings and set off together. We walked to the edge of the village, passing last of all the Blue Bell Inn on our left, and after the lonely creak of its sign in the breeze had faded from our ears, we heard only the sound of our own feet on the tar. Michael had his scarf muffled over his mouth, and his eyes looked ahead of him intently. Nothing about him suggested that he was in the mood for conversation. He was not usually so serious. This inheritance business must have been gnawing at him badly. The copse lay about a hundred yards off to the right-hand side of the road, and about half a mile out of the village, and popped in and out of view through the gateways in the high hedgerows. As we came up alongside it, he indicated an overgrown stile which led to a path along the side of a field already bearing the green shoots of winter wheat. We climbed over it and onto the path. We trudged slowly as the mud stuck to and enlarged our feet. As far as I could see, there was nothing remarkable about this little bit of woodland that appeared to be growing in the poorer ground on the edge of the field, possibly harbouring boggier ground or even a spring, perhaps left in place for many years to provide some shelter in an otherwise flat farmland. The footpath, however, made every effort to skirt around it, although it was certainly not too dense to enter. On the side of our approach, there was a ruined dry stone wall with a few stunted holly bushes clinging to it, which we climbed over and then stood in the deepening mould of beech leaves under the trees. Michael shivered and spoke into his scarf for the first time since we'd left the village. You see what I mean, he said. It's creepy. I don't think I've ever known such a sacred stillness, I said, unable to escape the feeling that I'd somehow come home. He kicked the ground nervously, the last of the field mud falling off his shoes. The grey trunks stood over us like the arches of a cathedral. Michael looked at me, giving me that look again as if I were some sort of oracle. I didn't know what to say. It dawned on me that whatever frightened him could not really be here among these trees, but somewhere inside him, perhaps. When you're lost for words, find a way to make the other person talk until you found them again, I thought to myself. Tell me what you see here, Michael, I said, and try to articulate what makes it creepy for you. That tree has a damned face on it. I feel as if it's looking at me, he said, and everything here reminds me of bones. I'm looking at you and I have bones. Is that so bad? I said. It sounded like a smart reply, but I was just stalling for time. My goodness, you're so right. How silly of me to be frightened of such a thing, I hoped he would say. Instead, he said with sudden firmness, don't try to say the problem is with me somehow. There's something wrong with this place, and I'm surprised you can't see that for yourself. I saw a little bit of the admiring awe die from his eyes as he looked at me. I had not given him an answer anything close to what he had hoped for, and I had taken a little stumble in his estimation. 
I suppose it had achieved what I wanted it to, which was to get me off whatever pedestal he had me on so I could meet him on a level. I scanned the trees around us again, and when I looked back at him he looked even more frightened. Without the protection he'd supposed I might offer him, he was even more vulnerable. I'm going to have a look round, I said, and walked off several yards into the trees, passing the tree with wrinkles in its bark that gave it a long face with a single staring eye. I drew a deep lungful of the autumn air with overtones of leaf mould and an end note of tobacco smoke, because Michael had pulled his pipe out of his pocket and was going through the painstaking process of lighting it. I walked on, treading quietly like an animal, breathing carefully and listening. It was certainly quiet. Every few steps I looked back at Michael, who was drawing sulkily on his pipe and watching me out of the corner of his eye. Probably frightened to be left alone, but also too fearful to follow me any deeper into the trees. Pausing by the remains of a dead beech that had lost its crown and buckled like a single beckoning bony finger, I tried to remember the last time I had felt afraid, and why. I couldn't remember. If there was any numbness in my emotions left over from my dark adolescence, perhaps it had left me impervious to fear. On the other hand, I must have traversed hell several times in those years, and after that there could be nothing left to fear. A cry from Michael brought me back to the moment. Hey! It sounded like an exclamation more than a cry of distress. So I walked swiftly but didn't hurry back to where I'd left him. This time I noticed that many of the trees I was passing were dead or dying, with the characteristic discoloration or infestations of fungus that mark the last years of an old tree. There were no younger saplings. Michael had moved back to the wall on the edge of the trees and walked a little way down its shattered spine. He gestured with his pipe. Look at the size of those elderberries, he exclaimed. No, they must be plums, I said, for the great black fruits clustered on every branch were pulling them downwards. But he was right. The bark, the leaves, and the smell were all those of an elder bush, but every fruit, usually the size of grape shot, was swollen to the diameter of a fingernail. My mouth was watering involuntarily, and I wanted to taste the berries anticipating their sour pop in the mouth and the instant furriness at the back of the palate that always reminded me of cream. Now tell me there isn't something very disturbing about that, said Michael. Out of courtesy to him, I refrained from popping one into my mouth in front of him and instead plucked a couple down and dropped them into my pocket. I'm going to have a look inside the woods again, I said to Michael. Don't wait for me. I can make my own way home. I just want to have another look. Michael said he would come too, and laughed nervously. We tramped deeper into the trees. It remained spacious in the interior, the older beech trees dominating the canopy, and no signs of new, younger growth emerging between them, so we still felt as if we walked between the pillars of a cathedral with its roof blown off. I noted that the majority of the trees were either dead or showing the signs of dying. Some had become hollowed out with decay, and stood like the empty jackets of a tall, thin race of giants. When it felt as if, by my estimation, we had arrived somewhere near the middle of the woodland, 
we paused in front of a broad trunk, split open on one side and hollow enough for an adult to walk in and stand inside it. Michael fiddled with his pipe, knocking it out on the back of his shoe and refilling it with an intense frown on his face. Something's definitely killing these trees, I said. So, something's off, replied Michael triumphantly. Something long and slow, I continued. Most likely a fungus. What use is a dead and rotting piece of woodland to me, said Michael testily. I didn't answer, but went to take a closer look at the specimen in front of us. I stepped inside it to get a closer look at the rot from the inside, but also noticed that the sound of my footsteps suggested that the ground underneath was hollow too. I stamped a couple of times, and the next few moments is a bit of a blur. I can remember the ground giving under my feet, almost as if a mouth had suddenly opened directly under me and sucked me in. Something snagged my jacket and it bunched up round my shoulders, and I managed to stop myself with my head and shoulders out of the hole, flailing my legs around trying to find the sides of it underneath me. Michael was on his haunches in front of me, reaching out a hand and saying, "'Grab my hand!' and then the ground between us collapsed and we both fell down into complete darkness, pitched over and over and swallowing mouthfuls of soil every time we gasped for breath. We came to rest on cold sand, and when the dust had settled and our eyes opened, we were both lying on our backs, looking up at a crack of daylight in the hole we had come down, now a few metres above us. The echo of falling debris suggested to me that we were lying at the bottom of a large underground chamber. "'Are you hurt?' I called out to Michael. "'No,' he groaned, following it with a few choice words and an inarticulate moan of self-pity. I heard him trying to scratch a match alight, and suddenly light fled from his fingers. He was on his hands and knees, holding the match in front of him carefully. In the meagre light I saw the ceiling of a cave, out of reach above us, but the edges of this chamber seemed to be somewhere in the shadows beyond the edge of visibility. "'Damn!' said Michael, as the match burnt out. He'd seen enough to be on the point of despair, but with an Englishman's typical flair for cheery understatements I heard him say to the darkness, "'No point in being a beautiful corpse down here. No one will ever see me again.' I worked my way towards the sound of his voice on my hands and knees until I could hear his breathing just a couple of feet away. Michael struck another match, casting our faces into sharp relief like a pair of grotesque papier-mâché puppets. The light confirmed that we were in a cavern of considerable breadth, but of three or four metres in height. The floor was covered with a cool, slightly moist sand, and from the roof over our heads there dangled an upside-down forest of tree roots like twisted stalactites. Another flare of another match showed the floor to be littered with what our imaginations first suggested were bones, but which were really dead roots that had broken from the roof. There seemed to be a very slight movement of air. How many matches do we have? I asked. I don't know. It feels like a pinch of about six or seven, I'd guess, said Michael. We were being overtaken by the common grace of dire circumstances, the ability to put desperation out of our minds and think of practicalities. At the next burst of light, I saw that Michael had taken his scarf off and wrapped it round a broken tree root to make a rudimentary torch. 
It took flame on the second attempt, but we anticipated it would only give us a couple of minutes of light at the most. Both of us stood up and looked around us for some sign of the sides of the chamber, knowing that any way out on this level would be found in its walls. Nothing offered us a clue, so we went towards where the air seemed to be coming from. If the forest above us was the cathedral, then this was the crypt, many of the roots reaching right down to the floor like so many pillars too. Michael noted that the roof seemed to be getting higher above our heads, and when we suddenly caught a glimpse of one of the walls of the chamber, it was about 15 metres in front of us. At that same moment, we saw the ceiling curving dramatically upwards into the darkness. We were standing on the threshold of a much larger part of the cave. Our torch guttered and died, dropping a few glowing threads of Michael's scarf onto the floor, and the darkness rushed back. Michael suggested that we try to make a fire to give lasting light to the whole area, and after a couple of minutes of scrabbling around on our hands and knees, and feeling for dead wood, and listening for each other's voices in the dark, we had an armful. I tore a few strips from the lining of my jacket and we managed to start a small fire with this offering. The flames lit a great chamber about the size and dimensions of a banqueting hall. The walls were smoothed, white and fantastically curved by the action of water. The floor of this chamber sloped down slightly and became more damp underfoot. The sand glistened with wetness and yielded a little when trodden upon. In fact, running down the centre of the chamber was what appeared to be a dry riverbed. With any luck, there's an old watercourse here that emerges somewhere wide enough for us to squeeze out, I postulated. Michael pointed to the far wall, where a small vertical crack showed above a pyramid of rubble that was slumped against the wall. Perhaps that's the way out then, he said. It looks as if there's a gap that has been blocked by a rockfall. It was obvious that the gap was not wide enough for us, but it could possibly be opened by moving some of the rocks. I threw a few more dead pieces of root on the fire while Michael scrambled up to get a closer look. I think there's definitely a tunnel behind this and I can hear water, he called down to me. I joined him precariously at the top of the rockfall. It was impossible to see any deeper through the small hole, but it was possible to put an arm through it and feel a larger space beyond. We began to pull away some of the smaller rocks to enlarge the hole, but quickly found that there was at least one substantial boulder that we'd have to prise away in order to make enough room for ourselves to squeeze through. Michael returned to the fire to replenish and enlarge it with some more fuel, and then came back over carrying a tree root in each hand. It may have been a trick of the moving shadows, but he seemed to have acquired an easy swagger. Do you think this cave has anything to do with what's going on up there? he asked. I thought it had everything to do with it. I think that the woodland above depends on this underground stream somehow, and it appears to have all but dried up. That could be the reason for everything dying up there, I suggested. Michael tried to jam one of the roots between the cave wall and the boulder to see if he could shift it, but the rotten wood splintered uselessly. Then he leant against it with his shoulder and tried pushing. I hurried to his side and put my shoulder to the rock as well. We saw the smallest gap open underneath the boulder and felt it rock a few millimetres and fall back. 
Let's try rocking it, I suggested, and see if we can shift it a tiny bit at a time. We heaved again. One, two, three, four. Good. It rarely moved that time. But that fourth push unleashed a loud crunching and hissing sound from behind the boulder, and some of the smaller rocks started to tumble. Suddenly Michael, who was closer to the hole and the cave wall, shouted, Water! And there was a jet of water shooting out under pressure from the gap we had just made. But as I tried to comprehend what was happening, everything suddenly turned to liquid in front of us. The blockage collapsed, and dark, foaming water leapt towards us from the tunnel behind. I was knocked off my feet, and the last thing I saw by the light of the fire before it was extinguished by the flood was one of Michael's hands flailing out of the water. When the light went out, the noise rushed in upon my senses. The water was carrying me very swiftly, and in spite of my best attempts to keep my head above it, I was completely at its mercy, gasping for air whenever I could and being flung under and held down by unseen currents, over and over, not knowing which way to pull myself to get to the surface, bumping and scraping on hard objects, rushing along without even the power to wake up from the nightmare. How long I fought for my life in hand-to-hand combat with the currents, I don't know. The only thing alive in me was the animal drive to survive at all costs, a being that has no sense of time or any ability to estimate a slim chance. But at some point, I became aware of light again. And with light, I was able to orient myself to motion. I broke upwards, blowing the water out of my mouth and nose and opening my eyes to the glare of a thousand dancing suns reflected in the water's surface. Treading water and gasping, I looked for dry land, and recognised the edge of the lake that was less than a mile away, south of our village. I had actually swum here before. "'Michael!' I called. I couldn't see him in the water anywhere near me, but since I didn't have the strength to keep treading water for much longer, I started to swim to the shore, stopping and shouting for him every few yards. "'Michael! Michael!' When I got to the shallows, I found him, on his hands and knees, panting and staring at the water around his elbows. We'd made it. We laughed, and laughed, and laughed with relief like a pair of drunks until our throats were too dry to laugh any more. Miraculously, neither of us had more injuries than a few scratches and bruises. We supported each other up the hill, and back home, unable to talk about what had just happened to us, except to chuckle gleefully. The following day, I heard a knock on my door in the middle of the morning. It was Michael, with a hessian bag in one hand and his pipe in the other. "'I'm going to pick some elderberries,' he said. "'Want to join me?' "'Of course,' I replied. "'I know where you can find some whoppers.' "'So do I,' he said." There was a casual swagger in his walk that morning, and it wasn't just the light. When we got to the copse, he cast a paternal eye over it and pronounced that it was looking better already. At the root of our fear has something died, for the waters have dried and the streams of our eyes are not fed with life. Wherever there is terror, let the waters run clearer till washed is the soul of the hearer.